0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today we talk with Dr. Andrew Curley, Assistant Professor in the School of Geography, Development and Environment at the University of Arizona, and a member of the Navajo Nation. Andrew does fascinating work on how Native American people and governments manage water and energy resources in a complex landscape. In today's episode, we talk about water and energy issues in the Navajo Nation, where Andrew lives, and how history, politics, economics, and social factors affect decision-making about the governance of these essential resources. Stay with us. Andrew Curley, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Andrew, we're going to talk about your work on Native American uh, communities, specifically related to water and energy issues, uh, where you've done lots of fascinating stuff. Um, But before we get into that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues, whether their interest started from a young age or whether you came to this later in life. So how did you kind of just get into working on these topics?
1: Well, I was uh, interested in questions of development and inequality in college, you know, that was a uh, topic I started to develop um, in a larger interest in, taking sociology classes in New Mexico and then elsewhere, and um, uh, eventually being afforded the opportunity to to do some research um, internationally. And well, I went on a um, it was kind of like a trip where we I went with people who did research in the area in Nicaragua on coffee farms, small-scale coffee farms, and looking at um, coffee farming uh, that was going towards fair trade markets. And then I eventually um, started to try to replicate some of this kind of work in, in Tanzania and Ghana around other kinds of fair trade commodities like coffee and chocolate, the oh, yeah. base material of chocolate. And, um, and so I started to think about commodities and commodity chains and how... Uh, things that are produced in one location get transferred into some sort of product and some sort of commodity uh, with value added in other places. And when I when I finished college and went back to the Navajo Nation to do work, you know, which was my intention all throughout college, then I started to think about, well, what are our you know commodities that we produce? What are the bases? of our economy here in the Navajo Nation. And looking around me and looking at the politics on the ground, everybody was talking about coal and the future of coal mines. And so that's how I got interested in energy questions and environmental questions, you know, because those were the ways we were framing the conversation great so um
0: that, that that's a perfect lead in to the next question i wanted to ask you because um you know there's a couple important terms that i think we should define at the outset of our conversation you mentioned uh you know the navajo nation but there's also an important term uh, which is diné so um can you explain for our listeners what the difference is between the word diné and the word navajo
1: diné is a word that we use in our our language diné bizaad that basically means who we are. It refers to us. Um, Whereas Navajo Nation is the name of our tribal government and the spatial configuration, the reservation, uh, whose jurisdiction the tribe maintains. That's uh, the Navajo Nation. And Navajo is not a word that's in our language. It's an approximation. I think of a Tewa word, which is a Puebloan language along the Middle of Rio Grande Valley. When Spanish uh, colonialists came in and tried to understand who we were, you know, referring to us out in um, out in the hinterlands from their perspective, and uh, and the, and then the the Pueblo people used a word that. Was like Navoo, or I don't know exactly what they said. I mean, it's really um, hard to to track that down. But you know, the Spanish uh, approximated that to Navajo, and um, and then that stuck, and so that's why we were called Navajo. And then when Anglo colonialists came in, they tried to um, replace the J sound, which in Spanish has a sounds like an H in English, and they tried to actually replace that with an H and. Even today in our tribal code, we're very um, strict about having the J there, like that's spelled out. <laughs> we're like we're spelled Navajo with a J and not an H, even though it's not even our, our language and our words. So yeah, that's where that, that term comes from. And and before that, you know, we were we used to be the Navajo tribe, and then it was 1968 when we just when we became the Navajo Nation. We re- rebranded ourselves Navajo Nation. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's like so much rich history just in in those two words uh, to try to unpack. I'm sure we could spend you know an entire hour
1: or longer uh, talking about them. I thought um, that's what we were going to do. I thought that's what this episode was about. Oh no! <laughs> just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Wait, am I in the straight. wrong place? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not.
0: It's not etymology uh, radio. Oh, okay. It's resources radio. Uh, um, okay. <laughs> okay, Andrew. So I'm going to, I'm going to steer you away from, uh, from etymology from that, and, and we're going to okay. move towards water instead. So, uh, so as I mentioned, you've done fascinating work on water as well as energy. And we're going to try to talk about both today, but we'll start with water. Um, you know, you, you wrote a, a 2019 paper called Our Winter's Rights, Challenging Colonial Water Laws, in which you talk about the Little Colorado River as a case study. So can you, um, kind of, again, setting the stage here, help us understand how Native nations such as the Navajo Nation uh, are allocated water rights in the West and just kind of like help situate us like what are water rights? How do they uh, get assigned? And like, why are they important?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a really important question. And it's a big question. So I'll try to summarize quickly. Um, Our rights are reserved from a supreme court decision i think it was 1908 called uh that's often called winters it's referred to as winters that's where, where that name comes from in the title of the article so people all, all uh, tribal um, leaders and um, community groups and activists will refer back to the winters rights this is something that is um, part of u.s law advanced through the courts and determined by the courts And um, and so that's something that is reserved from that Supreme Court decision and figuring out what that water is, what that water right is, has been the question since then, you know, more than 100 years. And often these water rights have to conform with existing allocation and existing agreements. Not only within communities or within state water codes, but also between states and so and also international agreements. So like when we're looking at the Colorado River, you know, there's an agreement between the United States and Mexico on how much water will eventually reach Mexico. And then there's an agreement between what are considered the seven Colorado River Basin states, um, and this was signed 100 years ago, or it was agreed to 100 years ago um, in 1922 in Santa Fe, where the representatives of the state divided the river in half and and approximated how much water goes through that and gave all of those waters to the states. And so to this day, at least in the Southwest and in in the Colorado River Basin, because of uh, decades of Supreme Court rulings and and other kinds of uh, um, uh legislation over the years today uh Indian water rights or tribal water rights uh come out of the state's um apportionment how much of the Colorado River so how much of the river um that the state was guaranteed uh that will come out of the the state's budget whatever agreement the state makes with um with the tribal governments and so that Sometimes it creates these um, inherently adversarial relationships between states and tribes over water rights, and then they become, um, and then they they expose inequalities, political inequalities between the states and tribes, especially when you're trying to conform these rights through the legislative process through uh, Congress. You know, states have representatives there; tribes don't. When it comes to water rights, and so you have to negotiate with with states who already have a much greater advantage in the form where the the water rights are eventually uh, solidified into law. And so those are, that's, you know, the nature of the the politics that I'm looking at with water rights, um, especially in Arizona, but uh, along the Colorado River. In that particular article, what I was looking at was not just the way I was describing that understanding, the way that the law has rendered the river, but also how people think about Rights to the river beyond just what the Supreme Court has said, but as some sort of inherent um, aboriginal occupancy right that is somewhat un inarticulated in uh, in federal colonial law because you know the colonialists don't want to acknowledge uh in uh, aboriginal rights, and that's a different kind of right than what is guaranteed in winter's rights, so that's those are the the differences and tensions i'm I'm looking at with water rights and water um, settlements and water. Um, litigation that are between the tribes and the states right now. That's great. And,
0: you know, I think the next question hopefully will dig us down like a level deeper on some of the inequalities that, that you mentioned and some of the failure to acknowledge kind of inherent rights of, of occupancy that, that you referenced. So you talk a lot in the article about a group of Diné activists who opposed the little Colorado water settlement, or at least I think they they opposed parts of it at least. Um, so what were some of their core critiques and how did they kind of bring them to bear um, in the process of the negotiation between the state and the tribe?
1: Well, that was an interesting, I mean, it's almost a particular history because at that time, uh, the state of Arizona with uh, John Kyle, the former senator being the face of the state, were trying to wrap up two big and important issues um, into one agreement between the Navajo Nation, the Hopi tribe, and the state of Arizona. And this was the extension of the Navajo Generating Station, a coal-fired power plant along the Colorado River that used Colorado River water um, to cool its generators and, um, and other kinds of water needed, and also the um, the water settlement for the Little Colorado River, how much um Acre feet of water would the Navajo Nation, the Hopi Tribe, be satisfied with? Um, And this included also from surface to aquifer waters that they were entitled to, and some monies for infrastructure development. So all of this was wrapped up into one package, and a lot of uh, Diné activists uh, immediately noticed the, um, you know, the not only just the the what they saw was a lessening of the, the amount of water that. They felt the tribes ought to be entitled to, but the combination of the the water settlement with the extension of a power plant lease, and so if you think about it, for Dene activists who have been working on um, closing down coal-fired power plants for years, at this point, um, decades in some cases, uh, when when they see a an agreement tied to a water settlement that extends the life of the power plant for twenty five years, they become wary and then think that this is a, another example of colonial chicanery, right? Oh, we're going to, you need water to survive. So we're going to tie up this extractive industry to this, to this water settlement. And so that from their perspective, that was, that was a a, a colonial technique to, to get at the inherent natural wealth of the, of the reservation. And so they were saying, "Oh, look at this. This is another example of naked colonialism." And um and and I think that was particular to that settlement. I don't I can't think of any other water settlement that tied a extension of a power plant to it, and eventually those things were separated, and then we could examine the water rights on its own terms, examine the the extension of the lease, the coal-fired power plant lease on its own terms. But initially, these things were presented together, and that, that raised a lot of red flags for people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, just one question of clarification. It wasn't totally clear for me from reading the article, but when this was happening, I know you were traveling with the at least some of these activists um During the negotiation process, did you sort of consider yourself an activist in that process or did you consider yourself like an observer or how did you think about yourself then and how do you think about yourself now when
1: looking (laughs) back on that experience? That's a really, really important question and that's a really good question. Honestly, I did not consider myself an activist, although I imagine other people reading my positionality might read me as an activist. Or they might read me in other ways as somebody who's undermining the work of environmental groups or environmental justice groups. And so, you know, it's that is a tricky part of doing this kind of field work Um, when you're working within a location and and, and joining a social network and a social fabric. um, Inevitably you have you do you inherit or you develop a social identity around that and you know who you're you're interacting with whom you're traveling with that has bearing on how people read you and so in this case you know people uh who were co workers would notice that I would be friendly or be friends with people who were environmental activists or who consider themselves environmental activists and I think it goes the other way too, even though uh, I haven't heard that directly, but you know because i'm I was prioritizing in my research the position or the the perspective of co workers, then it was I was seen somewhat uh, as not contributing to the larger politics of the environmental group, so the positionality is really an important question and when when I was in um these spaces, not only was I those two kinds of positions but also I was um, somebody who had family in tribal government, you know, who were making these decisions at the time or who were on either side of actually the water rights settlement. (laughs) So I, you know, I had people who were like, I was related to either through blood or marriage that were on either side of the water settlement, promoting it or decrying it. And um, and so, you know, in, in a community like the Navajo Nation, when you're when you're doing this kind of work as a member, it it can become tricky, and you can be read in a lot of different ways. But getting back to your question, I didn't consider myself a, an activist as much as um, I was. You know, I had my political opinions. I was uh, skeptical of the water settlement, and um, and since then, I've I've become a little bit more forthright with my my understanding of you know what. I think, uh, should be happening with water distribution in the Southwest. But but I, I, I wasn't really sure at that point. I was still learning a lot and interviewing not only tribal workers, but also the attorneys who were working on the water settlement. I interviewed um, a couple of uh, senior attorneys uh, working um, for the Navajo Nation on water rights uh, litigation, and they were um super helpful. I could not have written this article without their insights and their understanding of water law, like everything I know really comes from the Navajo water rights attorneys
0: mm-hmm. yeah, that's so interesting, yeah thinking about one's role in sort of engaged social research, things can get really complicated and sometimes muddy um you know one. One other question kind of back to the the technical aspects of the negotiation I was hoping you could expand on is, you know, you mentioned the the tying up of the extension of the coal-fired power plant with the water rights. Uh, Aside from that uh, sort of intermingling of those two issues, what were some of the biggest differences between the goals of the activists who you talked about and the goals of the Navajo Nation government uh, that they were kind of seeking as they were negotiating with the state?
1: yes that's that's also an interesting question because um it became clear for me with a different part of my research, which was on the coal on the coal aspect on the mining of the coal and um what was the interest of the tribal government and in that case, you know what they wanted to do was preserve revenues coming from i mean it's not to say that they were unconcerned about the loss of jobs and livelihood they were but And a really important feature of the mine and the land leases for the power plant was the amount of money that it contributed to the to the annual coffers of the Navajo Nation government. And in the case of the water settlement, the tribe was also interested in um, in not monetary benefits, but um, infrastructure development. And this is usually the carrot that's tied to water settlements. Um, the state government will put in funding within the, the legislation required to enact the settlement uh, for a pipeline, for some sort of um, water infrastructure that's needed to bring water to a community. And this is described by the water attorneys as wet water (laughs) they're saying like we actually put water into use we bring you the tangible water rather than this abstract paper water as they call it so like on 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 paper you can have all these rights to water or claim you have all these rights but you can't actualize that water until you have the money necessary to build the infrastructure, the pipelines, canals, uh, pumps, whatever is needed to bring the water to the household or to the business or industrial site or whatever you envision the water being used for, you know, you need to actually have some money, some capital to spend to, to make that water work for you. So those are the nuts and bolts of the water settlement. You really need to have those, that infrastructure funding, and that's what the tribal government's thinking about what the activists and the community organizers were focused on was the the time the uh foreverness of suspending water you know it's it is almost it's akin it it is like treaty making it is modern day treaty making when you've final boundaries for reservation you're stuck with those boundaries and sometimes you know at the time like in the late 19th century you're under a lot of pressure settlers are coming in there's a lot of violence directed against you you know you want to have some sort of safety and guarantee in the form of a reservation boundary 150 years later there are huge shortcomings with the where where the boundaries are you're either losing sacred sites traditional burial grounds all sorts of things that you just were willing to, to to not deal with at the time but now uh, are are sad that you didn't deal with those issues, um, and so that's that's you know it's this with this understanding of deep history, the way that colonialism plays out, I think informs it, it the perspective of of organizers and activists who say, hey, look, we're suspending our rights forever. You know, we are telling the state that we are forever, and this is like one of the first things that things that you read within a settlement language. You know, this forever language, We're forever agreeing to this, and that's a long time. Forever is a long time, and it's <laughs> it's easy to to say, yeah, you know, let's sign it now. But you know, what what are the long term ramifications of this? And I think that's where um, it, they they are actually asking more questions and. Than positing answers they're not like saying here's what we need and what we want they're like let's sit down and have a dialogue about this what what do we want with a water feature and let's tie this water feature with a kind of a larger sense of community planning and nationness that we're you know a larger conversation that we we need to be having so it becomes tied up with other social cultural and political issues beyond just the water divided from the land and so i think that's fundamentally a different way Uh, that organizers and activists are thinking about water uh, from the way water attorneys were thinking about it. And that's kind of one of the points of the article is to say, hey, they're looking at this question in fundamentally different ways. The water attorneys are drawing upon a long lineage of law that divorces water from land, it divorces surface water from subsurface water. All of the ways that we're able to dissect the landscape and then quantify it and and give it property or as things akin to property rights, access rights you know water rights however you want to put it you know that's the way and they know that language well and they advocate for the tribe as as hard as they can so they're you know we're not undermining what they're doing but it's just a fundamentally different perspective from the way that these community organizers and activists and former tribal leaders many of these people were like former tribal leaders so they're not just People that you're like, oh, this is just a Sierra Club or whatever. These are outside agitators. These are like Peter McDonald, you know, former chairman of the Navajo Nation. He was against the water settlement. Other former leaders of the Hopi tribe were against the water settlement. So these are like, it's a really ingrained, embedded critique of the whole process. And um, and they were saying, we need to think about this alongside some of these other longstanding issues that that haven't been discussed. And so, you know, it was, it was this really interesting to be there at that time and observe how these two conversations were having a parallel, but they were not intersecting. (laughs) Each side had their own kind of like perspective and blinders on, but they weren't able to get into the other perspective. I think that was part of the reason why you just had two sides going in different directions on this. and. Um, you know, and I guess that's the nature of politics. You know, when you're, when you're uh, trying to advance a political position, you end up like focusing on your, what your perspective is more than what, um, kind of the larger political landscape is. So I don't know. That's, that's the long, like I said, I'm long winded today. I apologize.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. I mean, there's, again, there's like so much richness here and, and, you know, this is why your work is so fascinating because you're kind of helping us get you know into that second and third cut of of detail on such complex topics. Man, there's so many follow-up questions I want to ask you, but but I'm going to stick to the script and um turn to uh, this topic of coal which which you've mentioned several times, right? It's a it's it's an important uh sort of economic issue uh for the Navajo Nation. Um and, you know, as many listeners probably know, the Navajo Generating Station did close. I think roughly two years ago, um, and you know many environmental advocates, and I, I'm imagining many advocates on the reservation, Diné people, sort of celebrated that as a win. But you've documented in your work the sort of range of perspectives that, uh, that people have about the pros and cons of shutting down coal mining and shutting down uh, coal-fired power uh, on the reservation. So can you just kind of talk about what you've learned about different perspectives on, on this topic of coal?
1: Yeah. I mean – Definitely there was a long standing critique of coal that goes back to the 1970s when, uh, well, probably earlier, but as far as I could find in, in our limited historical record on the Navajo nation, um, the 1970s when coal mining started to, to open up on, especially on Black Mesa where we had the Navajo mine and the Kienta mine open up. And, um, you know, people were concerned about the damage it was doing to the landscape, unearthing, um, you know, the ground and and permanently creating a disfiguration on places that they've known for a long time, um, possibly contaminating it uh, forever. In some cases, uh, there have been multiple incidences over the years of livestock getting tangled up with coal or or somehow... Um, drinking water and getting sick or dying and you know you can see like instant effects of it on not just people but on life on the mesa and, and around it and so you know there's been this kind of long-standing understanding of coal as having this health and environmental um, negative impact on people Yet at the same time, it was providing hundreds of jobs, um, millions of dollars in revenue, and was a really good place for uh, Diné workers. Uh, it was gendered labor, so primarily men, but not exclusively men. There were there were women who worked in the industry, but um, just you know by the nature of extractive industries being gendered work, um, it tended to favor male workers or people who identified as male as workers and. Um, they could come out of high school or return in this case, like from Vietnam. And, you know, and it was a place where you can build skills, right? You learn skills on the job. And those skill sets are transferable to other kinds of work, um, depending on what you're doing. Because it's it's not just, you know, sometimes in the popular imagination, mine work is seen as just, (laughs) you know, being in a, in a, like a coal seam or like with a, pickaxe or underneath the ground with a hard hat on or you know there, that's a popular imagination but actually there's a lot of industrial work uh, welding truck driving all sorts of other uh, auxiliaries at the word activities around the actual mining itself where people learn different skills and so in some ways it's like a college for people you know that um, a lot of people can get into that's not exclusive and, and turning people down like our, our other colleges. And and so, you know, it's a working class kind of job and people built their identities around it. And, um, and pretty and good earned, paying too, right? It was really good. I mean, this was part of the challenge of doing field work. is like, I was a poor graduate student trying to entice co-workers who made three or four times as much money as I did, you know, to sit down for an hour or or less of their time and and answer questions. And, you know, to them, I'm not worth their time, right? They already know what they're thinking on it. And I am giving them, you know, small rewards here and there to sit down and and talk. So yeah, I think I think, you know, you have to you have to understand like it is a really good paying job in in a place where there's there's not that many jobs available. Um, Some people estimate around 50% unemployment. I think there's some problems with that statistic, but, um, nevertheless, it just means that there's, it's hard for people to find jobs in the reservation. And that's something the coworkers would, would say often, you know, um, I felt unscripted. They were like, I got to stay close to home. I got to work, um, near where I'm from. And it, it was just much better to, to have that kind of working environment than to have to travel two or three hours to a border town or even further, if you're in construction and your construction, you know, your construction sites moving around, even across the country, you know, you can be gone for a long time uh, from home, you know, it's, you know, these are the kind of the real costs of this working class labor. And so, uh, and so the, the advantage of coal work was that you're, you're there, you know, the coal doesn't move around, <laughs> turns out. So it has this kind of fixity that, <laughs> that, you know, and that's also, it's part of the reason for its decline in some ways too, is because of how hard it is to transport. But like, I think, I think so that was their perspective, right? And they were doing it. Some of these people were doing this since the seventies, um, working in this. And then environmental groups were especially, uh, starting to understand the, the impacts of, of coal on the larger uh, planet environment, the climate, you know, what we're calling climate change, you know, it's contribution to climate change. And that critique is more recent as it is with you know, the national environmental movement, it is with the Dene or Navajo environmental movement. And so we were also asking ourselves questions of what is our contribution to global warming and climate change? And how are we uh, exacerbating the problem with the continuation of these industries? But getting back to the original framing, you know, I think there were some groups that celebrated it, but I think a lot of people, including the environmental activists, realize that it's is another tragedy, really the closure of the mine and the uh and the demolishment of the power plant and it's like the different you know that rock and a hard place saying you know it's literally you're you're stuck with two difficult options and um and the closure of the plant and the the its demolishment i can't see as so anything to celebrate i think it's a really it's it's an indication of a loss um not only the loss of the environment the landscape for how many 40 plus years of of the mining and then the water that was used and there's a this is another long story that i don't think we have time for but the aquifer water used to slurry coal from what was the Black Mesa mine to Mojave generating station, that loss of that water, that aquifer water over the years. And then you have the loss of the jobs, the loss of the income, the loss of the the revenues for the tribal government. It's nothing but loss for us, you know, um, with the closure of that power plant and the mine. And so um, to look at it, And celebrate it is to look at it ahistorically, you know, to look at the closure as a point of celebration. And um, I think it it forces us to answer difficult questions as a tribe, but it definitely isn't something to be celebrating. Hmm. It's really fascinating. Um,
0: Well, Andrew, there are many more questions I would love to ask you, but we are uh, basically out of time. So I'm going to ask you the last question we ask all of our guests. And I know you have lots of opinions on uh, media uh, for us to enjoy. So um, we ask everybody to recommend something that's at the top of their literal or metaphorical reading stack. It can be something you've read or watched or heard uh, that you think is great and that you'd like to share with our listeners. Uh, and I know we you could talk about this for a really long time, but I'm going <laughs> to ask you to just pick one or two things and, uh, and recommend them to our listeners.
1: Okay. So at the top of my reading list, uh, there's there's a couple of books that I've been reading that I like, and they're they're kind of in the genre of environmental history, and so I really was inspired um, by the writing style, the beautiful writing style of Beth uh, Bathsheba Demuth's book, uh, Floating Coast, which I'm always promoting. Um, it kind of, in, <laughs> I I don't know, it's kind of funny because it's it's a little bit, it's up in the Arctic, it takes place there, but it 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 has this layered history of not only um, the history of life and animals in that area, but also extractive industry. So I imagine many of your listeners who, if they haven't already read that book, would be really interested in that. And then there's this other one that I'm working my way through that's really, really good. It's called Carbon Technocracy, Energy Regimes in Modern East Asia by Victor Seo. I hope I'm saying uh, his name correctly. But um, this just came out, I think, last year. And it's a it's like a history of coal mining in Manchuria, I believe. Um, so uh, I think that I'm saying that right. And um, yeah, it's it's a good book.
0: Wow, I just you know searched for those really quickly, and they both look absolutely fascinating. Um, so great recommendations, great conversation, uh, great work, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today and sharing it uh, with us. We really appreciate it.
1: All right, take care.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.